Please be seated. Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're visiting this morning, we're glad that you're with us. Thanks for coming and worshiping with us today. We're in the book of Philippians, and this morning we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. If you happen to be using one of the pew Bibles you'll find in front of you, you'll find that on page 982, Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you as we come to you this morning for the gift of your word. From it, you speak to us. You drive it home by the power of your spirit. Would you do that for us today? Uh, Lord, we thank you that you meet us this morning, all of us here in this room, uh, from the many different places we are coming today. Some of us glad to be here, coming off Thanksgiving and giving thanks today. Glad to be in your presence, glad to be with your people. We come joyfully. Some of us come uh, after difficult times of Thanksgiving with family and friends, or perhaps the lack of. Would you meet us? today and our struggle and sorrow. Father, some of us uh, may be just surprised that as we look around that we're even sitting in this room right now, but here we are by your invitation, by your good hand. So we pray uh, that you would feed us, all of us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our Lord stands forever. As we jump into this passage, let, let me ask you a question. You ever, um, you ever feel anxious? No, I'm seeing a bunch of no, not me. Uh, something is, is gnawing at you. Maybe there's a specific circumstance in life that's making you anxious. Or maybe it's so far beyond that you're just anxious about being anxious all the time. You know, you ever anxious? Um, a couple other things. Do you ever feel do you ever feel just somehow kind of hard? Like something in your life or in your heart has just begun to calcify and it's just starting to feel intractable? Or do you ever feel thankless or prayerless? Do you ever feel like your heart is just taking a beating? Do you ever feel like sometimes you have those days where the thoughts are racing around your head and you can't rein them in and they terrify you and you don't know if they're going to win? You ever look around at people, and, and maybe this would be your experience coming to a church this morning. You ever look around and think, you know, I'm glad people can't see inside of me what's going on, but I look around, and there are people around here that, I mean, they must have it mostly all together. I mean, maybe the problem's with me. Maybe some people are just, like, naturally wired to be spiritual people, and then there are normal people like I am that struggle with that stuff, but here we are at church surrounded by spiritual people. Well, if you ever felt any of those things, uh, this passage is for you, and it's for me. It's for us. See, Paul takes up all of these issues in this passage here, because I think one of the things that, that draws this whole passage together is Paul is talking about what does it mean for us, followers of Jesus, to live lives that have a real spiritual solidity, that feel grounded, uh, that 
when the wind blows, we don't fall over. What, what are the kinds of disciplines in life that God would work into us that we would really have that deep sense of connection, even in the midst of the very real struggles of life? What does it mean to be spiritually grounded? That's what Paul's talking about here. And he, uh, no surprise, he tells us three things about what it means to be spiritually grounded here. First, he tells us that there's something that we need to know. And he tells us there's something we need to be. And finally, there's something we need to enjoy. Something we need to know, something we need to be, something we need to enjoy. First, something we need to know. Look, at, look with me at verse 5. It says this, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Okay, that phrase right there, the Lord is at hand, is the crux of this whole passage. That's what holds this whole thing together. Another way of, and maybe clearer and better way of translating it the way that these translators have, is just to say that the Lord is near. That's what it means, that he is near. That's what Paul points us to. Now, if you think about that for a second, though, when you say it's near, there, there's some ambiguity there. Um, and it, it, we use the word near to mean a lot of different things in English, and it was the same with the Greek word. When the Lord is near, does that mean, does that mean like he's nearby, like he's in the room next door? Or does it mean that he's near temporally? Like, okay, Jesus is coming back, and the time at which he's coming back is near. Okay, Christmas is near. We're counting down the days. Is that what he means? Well, I think what Paul is getting at is actually both those senses wrapped up in, in one. It's, it's covering all of that. Um, first, this idea of being near in time. Paul lives with this expectation of this Jesus who has come, lived died and raised again for the, for the forgiveness of sins. He is coming back. He's really coming back at the end of all things. Paul's already spoken of this uh, in chapter 3 in verses 20 and 21. He says this to these believers in Philippi. He said, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Here he says, our citizenship is heaven, and we're waiting for Jesus to come back from there to us. We're waiting for that day of return. The New Testament uses a phrase that is so caught up in American evangelicalism and popular literature, it's sort of hard to get what it really means. But it talks, New Testament talks a lot about the last days. Okay, and here's what the Bible means when it talks about the last days. Ever since Jesus' death and resurrection, we have entered a new period in God's plan with the world. And it is the beginning of what the Bible calls the last days. And it encompasses all of time until Jesus returns. In other words, we are living now in the last days. We don't know how long those will be. But the Bible says that is the era of time that we are in. And Paul preaches from an, from an expectancy about that. Jesus really is returning. I remember as a, um, as a kid wait, waiting for Christmas Day, and I will just say unabashedly, Christmas meant presents, and that's what I was excited about. And you could, look at the, you could look at the calendar, and you could tick off the days until Christmas came, and you just knew, you knew it was coming, you knew when it was going to arrive, and I had that, just, that sort of longing for something coming in time. Um, as, as I got older, I, I began to understand this a little bit more, that the depth of the, of the longings of my heart actually went further than just presents at Christmas. That there was something deeper going on. And uh, have come to appreciate more the season of the church uh, calendar that we're in right now, Advent, which is a season of waiting. Waiting not for Santa Claus, but for Jesus. 
Advent's this time when we look back and remember His coming, as we even today uh, you know, read from Isaiah chapter 9 about this expectation of the coming of the Son. As we sing together, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We remember that coming, and we look ahead and remember that He is coming again. Advent, we are in a season of Advent now. Jesus will, in fact, return And we're reminded by Paul that that's the ground of our hope, that our Jesus is coming in time. But he goes on there, it's not just time. He says not only is he coming, not only is he near for his return, he's also near in presence. That even now, Jesus is here with his people by and through the power of his Holy Spirit. And that means if you are somebody who's in relationship with Jesus, you've been welded to him and he is here now. He's at work in your life now. His presence is real. He is with you in the midst of everything. He is as close as the next breath. He is here. See, what Paul is getting at, when he talks about spiritual life and spiritual solidity, even as I've said here, there's something for us to know. I mean, a better way of saying that really is not there's something to know, but there's someone to know. That at the heart of biblical spirituality lies not a bunch of techniques or things to tick off your list, but a person, the person of Jesus. And so, in the Bible's picture of what it means to know God, the picture of what it means to know God, it begins here with Jesus. There is no other step beyond this until that step is taken, of coming into relationship with Him as He comes after us. Knowing Jesus and knowing His nearness is the first step and sustaining step of all spiritual life, of coming to life, of being alive to God. It comes through Jesus. And we're reminded as believers that that God you came to know through Jesus at one point in your life is the one who is present for you, with you, now. Paul says to them, the Lord is near. This is our foundational hope. We, we go to this and to nothing else. We don't put our hope in other things. What are the other things we do put our hope in? What are the other things that say trust in this? This means our fundamental hope isn't in things like our financial security or our academic success or our marital fulfillment or having successful children or healthy bodies. It says our hope is in the Lord, that He is near to us. And the whole reason Paul tells us this and everything else he's going to say It's because he knows that we are forgetful people. There's some things you learn in life where it just clicks and you never lose it. Riding a bike is this way. You can learn how to ride a bike as a kid. You put it down for 20 years, get back on, and you can remember how to ride. But Paul says this is not like riding a bike. We must be reminded of it over and over and over again. The Lord is near and he is our hope. Because Paul knows and God knows that our natural reaction, especially in times of difficulty, is to think that the Lord is far. For some of us, far means doesn't even exist. For others of us, exists, but not for me, not now, not right here where I need him. The Lord is far. Paul comes and says, no, the Lord is near. We tend to say that he is far when we ask ourselves questions like this. How could this be happening to me now? Where did this come from? Why would God allow this? We look at the world around us. How, could, how can God exist and be good when all of this happens? We lose sight of it when we look and see the reality of the brokenness of our world and the brokenness in our own lives and mistake that for God's absence rather than the stage upon which God is 
very much at work. Even if it feels like the lights are down and you can't see what's going on. Paul reminds us the Lord is near. So first we see here that there's something that we need to know, someone we need to know. But secondly, we see that there's something that we need to be. With this starting point that the Lord is near, there's something that we need to be, verses 4 through 6. There, there's a, these five imperatives, commands that were given here by Paul. He says, do these things. So we're just going to go through these five things. And let me list them for you and then we'll come back. He says that we're to be joyful, we're to be gentle, we're to be free, we're to be prayerful, and we are to be thankful. He says, because the Lord is near, these are the disciplines of life, the things that we are to step into as we follow Jesus. First, he says that we are to be joyful because the Lord is near. Uh, Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. This is about the fourth time in the book of Philippians that Paul's come back to this point. You are to be people who rejoice. You are to be people as Christians who know a joy that sinks down deep in your life because of your relationship with God that plays out in lives of actual rejoicing. Paul says this to to people in the middle of hard circumstance in their life, of the possibility of very real persecution. Paul is writing this from uh, jail, and earlier he said, you know, you know the difficulties I have and that you're now beginning to have, that there's some sort of level of threat for this congregation. He says to them, in the middle of your struggles, he says, rejoice, be people who are joyful. Same idea, uh, we find in other places in the New Testament. First Peter says it this way. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible. Peter's talking to these second generation of believers who never saw Jesus with their own eyes. And he says to him, you don't see him. You haven't, you've never seen him with your eyes. But he is at work in your life. He is near. And so you have this joy that you almost can't express and explain. He said, because of that. And Paul says that is to be a part of our lives as followers of Jesus. And interestingly, it comes as a command. He says, rejoice. He says, be joyful. Now, you may well have heard uh, the way joy and and happiness are sometimes defined. You know, that happiness is, one way of looking at it, it's kind of rooted in our circumstances. You know, if somebody throws a birthday party for you and gives you exactly what you wanted, you're really happy that day, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. But, um, but imagine somebody coming to you just in the, in the middle of an ordinary day and saying, all right, on the count of three, I want you to be happy right now. Do it. You, you, happiness is a response to something in our circumstance. But Paul is exhorting us to joy, which is something that somehow goes deeper. That as Paul exp- says, be joyful from prison, he says, this is not connected to my actual circumstance right now. Or it's something that runs deeper than my actual experience right now. Life can be very hard around me, but because the Lord is near and he is present in my life right now, there is a joy that is tangible and real and sustaining. That's what Paul is exhorting them to. And he says, if you know Jesus, he's writing to his people, he says, rejoice. Rejoice. It's a command. In other words, he thinks that we can really do it because we put our minds back on what he has told us is true. The Lord is near. You might not feel it today, but he says, rejoice. Bank on this. Let that be the thing that divines your circumstance. Rejoice. The Lord is near. Second thing he says is these habits of heart or these disciplines put on. He says there's something that uh, he says that we're to be joyful because the Lord is near. Second thing he says is that we are to be gentle because the Lord is near. Although it doesn't look like that's what he's saying. Look with me in verse five. Uh, he says, "Let your reasonableness be known to everyone." A better translation there is, "Let your gentleness be known to everyone." 
Let your gentleness be known. That means for us, the Lord is near, so you no longer have to be defensive. And the Lord is near, so that you don't have to retaliate. The Lord is near, so you no longer have to look out for number one. You can be gentle. A couple of weeks ago, I finished reading a book um, called Left to Tell, Discovering God Amidst the Rwandan Holocaust by a woman named Immaculate Ilabagiza. And she was a survivor of the Rwandan Holocaust in 1994. Uh, she, w- she was a, a Christian, a believer in Jesus. And uh, as her entire family, minus one brother who was studying abroad, uh, were on the verge of being rounded, out, rounded up, she was put into this safe house. She was a, um, uh, a part of the Tutsi minority, and she was put in the house of a, of a Hutu pastor who, in a very small bathroom, stored away, I think it was eight or nine women, for 91 days. They didn't leave that room as they heard killing squads come again and again to the house, searching for them and searching for others. As she knew, her entire family was being slaughtered. As she would hear people chanting and she would hear the radio broadcast. In the midst of all of this, she found herself in a place where she had to dig down deep and trust in God. And she spent that time praying and seeing her life transformed. And there's a scene in the book after uh, the Tutsi uh, liberation forces come in and set them free when the the magistrate of the city has some of those who perpetrated these crimes in jail, and he brings before this woman, Immaculate, the person who killed her brother, who was her closest sibling. And he's expecting her to have the opportunity to vent all the hatred and vile that she has stored up over the atrocities that have happened. And instead, she looks at the man and tells him that she forgives him for what he's done. And this magistrate is offended and shocked. Can't believe what she's doing. What do you mean? I brought him here so that you could spit on him. Don't you understand what he has done? And she speaks, as, I, as her book tells the story of this journey she had of these three months in this room as everyone she knew was being killed. And the hatred began to eat her away until finally she realized that she must forgive and let it go and put it in the hands of God. And she did. She looked one of the perpetrators in the eye and said, I forgive you. She had become gentle. We're to be joyful. We're to be gentle. Paul goes on and says that we are to be free. And he says we're to be free in one particular area that he brings up here. He says we are to be free of anxiety because the Lord is near. He says do not be anxious about anything. Fairly comprehensive. Because he knows that, as Paul writes this, he knows that anxiety is the great enemy of all the other things that he lists here. Your anxiety is the enemy of joy. It's the enemy of gentleness, of prayer, of thankfulness. It is the thing that eats us away so we cannot step into these other disciplines and joys of life. It's a deep unsettledness of life. Think about the the actual things you are anxious about. Uh, Most likely, they tend to be problems or situations in our life where we feel like the, the problem or the situation is greater than the resources we have at hand to answer it, okay? If somebody bumps in your car in the parking lot and puts a dent in uh, your fender and you know you've got an extra $800 lying around, you're not worried. Imagine that. Okay. Uh, When something comes really crashing into your life and you know it is so far beyond your ability to handle it, the anxiety sets in. Where are the resources that are going to come to handle this? 
Paul says, we're to be anxious about nothing. What are you anxious about today? What have you been anxious about this week or this past month, even over Thanksgiving? What's your response? I mean, honestly, what is your response when you hear Paul saying to you, and you hear God saying to us today as he is, that thing you're anxious about, don't be anxious about that. That's what I'm talking about. That's what our God says to us today. Um, our two-year-old son, John Mack, is going through the two-year-old thing all our kids have had of just difficulty sleeping for what we hope is a period of time, uh, where he just has trouble going to sleep. And at the, at, the, at the end of the day, as we go back and forth about why he won't go to sleep, it's usually because he's scared, he's frightened. And so we'll have conversations about what he's scared about. And usually he'll say this, I'm, I'm scared of monsters. Uh, when I was a kid, for me, I was scared of Batman. That was the thing that terrorized my sleep. My wife, Elizabeth, it, it was Spider-Man that she was terrified of. We've tried to figure out what to do about this. Elizabeth's uh, father, uh, my father-in-law, what, what he did with Elizabeth when she was young, he'd say, I know you're scared of Spider-Man. Well, there's good news. I was driving home from work today, and I saw Spider-Man on the side of the road. And I stopped. I took the tennis racket out of the back of my car, and I beat him up, and I put him in the trunk. And Spider-Man's in the trunk of my car. You don't have to worry. <laughs> we haven't gone that far yet. <clears throat> But what I've found is I sit and as I talk to John Mack in those moments, it is one thing for me to tell him the truth. John Mack, there, there are no monsters in our house. John Mack, there are, there are no monsters. John Mack, you're safe. Your family is here. All that matters, it is true. But at the end of the day, when John Mack gets quiet, at least for a moment, it's, it's not because of those assurances as much as it is that I am there. Because Daddy's there telling him. Because I am present. That's what Paul tells us here. Don't be anxious, for the Lord is near. He's here. He is with you. And His presence makes all the difference. Don't be anxious, the Lord is near. He goes on, he says, be prayerful, because the Lord is near. Let your requests be made known to God as you come with prayers and supplication. Just a, a couple things here. It's interesting when he comes and he says, make your request known to God, notice he doesn't say, come give God your list of demands. Come tell him what you deserve. But instead, an invitation to come and bring to God your needs, your requests, your supplication. He says, come and ask. I think part of this for us is that we come and ask specifically. I'm surprised how many times I have conversations like this with you and conversations like this with myself, where we'll be talking about something you're struggling with in life, or I'll look at something for myself, and I'll, and I'll ask this question, like, well, have, have you prayed about that? Well, yeah. No, but, but have you prayed about, like, not just, the, not just the issue, but, like, all the things that you, that, that you know need to happen here, all the specific places where there is hurt and stress and pain? And often the answer is no, and often the answer is no for me, too. Paul says, come and bring your prayers. Meet your list of anxieties head on, point by point. Pray. Bring them to our God. In prayer, when he talks about this, prayer is not just, in Paul's mind, and not just in reality, a, a good coping technique. You know, for some of us, when we get anxious, we go and we exercise. Or we go and shop. Or we drink. Or we fill in the blank. Or we pray. That's the Christian coping mechanism. What Paul says is, no. 
He says, you go and pray because your anxiety is bound up with the fact that there are things in your life that are so far beyond your ability to control and your ability to fix, even in the times we don't see. He says that you are to pray because when you pray, you go to the one who has all the resources in the world. You go to the one who has resources that are so far beyond your need right now, you can't even comprehend. He says, when we pray, we're not just making ourselves feel better. We're going to the one who can actually meet us in our need and asking him for help. We're going to the source of the rescue we need. So he says that we're to pray, to take our anxiety and our struggles to him. Because prayer looks anxiety in the face. And he says, you are absolutely right. I don't have the resources for this, but I know the one who does. And I am in his hands, and I will go to my Father. Be prayerful. The Lord is near. And then finally in this list, he says, be thankful for the Lord is near. Uh, that we're to give thanks as we pray. And it's, it, it's appropriate. I mean, you know, Thanksgiving, here it was a couple days ago. When, when you think about Thanksgiving Day, what are the things that come to mind? Turkey? Family, maybe, eating a lot, parade, maybe. In college, when I thought of Thanksgiving, I thought the four-day holiday in which I write the English paper that I haven't written all uh, semester before final grades are due. But what about this? On Thanksgiving Day, even the day we call Thanksgiving, how often are we do we consciously remember how much we have to be deeply thankful for? And you see, what Paul is saying is it's not just a day in the year, but we as Christians are to live lives in this atmosphere of thankfulness, that we are a people who've been given much and are to give thanks. It is central to being a Christian, that we thank our God. Uh, one commentator talking about this says, says this, a lack of gratitude is the first step to idolatry. And he, and he quotes Romans 1 that, that says this uh, about mankind turning its back on God. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. It says, They knew God, but they refused to acknowledge it. They refused to thank Him. And so they went to idolatry. They made these carved things. And we don't do that. We fall into unthankfulness, may we turn away with unthankful hearts and we cling to all the other things that we will grasp joy and life from, things other than our God who meets us and gives us life. He says that a lack of thankfulness is a first step in idolatry. Now, when Paul says this too, this verse can really be misunderstood and misread. It can be read as a good spiritual technique. Now, when you pray, go ahead and thank God for the thing you're praying for in advance to show that you have the faith that he's really going to give it to you, right? God, I need, I, need a, I need a car. My car died. So I'm thanking you right now for the car that's going to show up in my driveway tomorrow mysteriously somehow. It might. And it's okay to pray about your car and your need. But, what's, but it's not saying that we give thanks in advance in that way. Some sort of name it, claim it thing. What's he saying? He's saying, as Christians, we come always with people with thankful hearts. Because we come to the God who has given us all that we need in Christ. And the one who promises to meet all our needs here, though that might not come in the form in which we might expect. But he says, our God does have us. We are his children. And so we come always with an attitude and with a real reflex of thankfulness. Be thankful for the Lord is near.
Okay, so there's something we need to know. There's something we need to be. And then finally here, uh, just briefly, there's something we need to enjoy. You see the gift that's laid out here in verse 7? Read with me again. It says, as you do these things and step into these disciplines of following Jesus, it says then, verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It says that for us, as we look to Jesus, there is a deep and abiding peace that comes from God himself. And it says that it is beyond understanding. The idea here is not that it's irrational, but that, that our minds can't go far enough to really grasp it. It's somehow up above, maybe a better way to put it, deeper than just that. He says it's going to guard our hearts and our minds. You could also translate what it, translate minds there. A better translation might be our thoughts. That it comes and it guards our hearts and our very thoughts. That God's peace is, com- is to come and fill our lives in such a way that there is this spiritual rootedness and fullness that comes straight from Jesus in ways that we can't even uh, necessarily define. See, Paul says at the end of the day, when you do these, when, when you bank on the fact that God is near, the Lord is near, and when you step into these uh, practices that he talks about, being thankful, not being anxious, he says when you do that, he said, this is not simply cognitive therapy, right? Convince yourself that God's given you a lot and be thankful and you're, somehow you'll be transformed. He says it goes beyond our thinking. He says as we step into these, we experience a real sense of peace that comes from God that is not simply a matter of talking ourselves into a better attitude. God is near. He is here. He is at work. And he comes to bring us our peace. He says that we are guarded by God in these things. And you think about Paul here again. In prison, guarded by Roman soldiers so that he can't possibly get out. He looks up and he sees maybe the power of Rome as it guards the things it wants to hold on to. And he says, don't you understand that this peace from God, it guards us. It sets a guard around us. We are protected and safe. Not the kind of guard that Paul had to keep him in and imprisoned, but one that sets us free for a life, trust, connection with God, a peace that comes from him. And somehow in here, the experience of this peace is linked to our living out these other things that he talks about. Again, God always makes the first and sustaining step. Remember what he says, the Lord is near. But he says we need to live our lives in light of that fact. You know, we just need to, we need to put our money on the table and do what we say is true. The Lord is near. Okay, what does that mean for us to live that way? Be thankful. The Lord is near. What does it mean to live that way? To turn from our anxiety and to prayer. The Lord is near. If we really believe that, what would that mean for us? means that we need to be gentle because something's transformed us. Do you see? He says this is what it means to live out a spiritually grounded life. And the result of that is this peace from God. Now, I don't quite know how to put my finger on it more than that. And if you're like me and you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you know there are times in life where you really have a sense of that and others where it feels far away. You might be in one or other of those circumstances right now. I think I'd just say Paul points us to this, to Jesus, to remembering these things, that he is near. And to then stepping into life with these patterns of life, that we'd be thankful, we turn from anxiety, we'd be gentle. All of those things that he lists here 
that as we step into it, we can expect with our eyes open that God's peace will come and meet us. That's his hope and his promise for us. And let let me just offer this to you by way of conclusion. Maybe you ought to do this this week. Maybe I ought to take five days this week and take each of these five things that Paul lists. Take some time to be by yourself and pray, to read these verses again in your Bible, and maybe jot in your journal if you've got one, and take them one by one. Lord, what is, where am I anxious right now? And what's behind that? Why, where am I not connecting the fact that you are near to my anxiety? Would you help me connect the dots on those? And another day, I look around, I'm I'm just not very thankful, yet I know cognitively I have so much to be thankful for. Would you work in me a thankful heart? And I'm going to step into that by actually saying thank you, by actually giving thanks. Lord, there's not much joy, yet you are near. You've got to help me rejoice. So I'm going to step into that. Take a day on each of these things. What would the Lord do for us as we try to take this truth that he is near, that he means for us to live lives that are spiritually grounded and see that work out in each of these different areas that Paul mentions to us. And may we experience what he offers us here, God's peace. Even on those days when we don't feel it, we do have this. Feel it or not, the Lord is near. He is near to us. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would make this more real to us. It is real in the sense that it exists and it is true and you are unshakable. But sometimes it feels like fiction to us or a nice dream or wishful thinking. Lord, would we know more of you, drink more deeply of you, where we know your peace, would you help us to not only know with our minds but bank on the fact that you are near and would that transform our lives? Give us joy. Give us thankfulness. Give us a freedom from our anxiety. Give us gentleness. Help us to pray. Lord, we lift all these things up to you, the one who's near. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.